Verse 9. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60. She's been faithful to her husband. She's well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Okay, so those... Uh, requirements. Uh, those under 60, uh, I think I talked to you guys about Leviticus 27, about uh, the value that was assigned for redeeming somebody at the temple, that it goes down when you hit 60 because your productivity uh, perhaps goes down. It's kind of like we, ha- we might retire at 65. They would retire at 60 was the way uh, that was uh, viewed. Um, it says that she uh, has to be a one-man woman, and this is just the flip opposite of the requirements for uh, an elder and a deacon who have to be one-woman men. And it is not meaning that she could only have been married wife. Well, she got married, and then her husband died, and then she got married again, and then he died. Now she can't be put on the list because she's had two husbands. That's not what that means. What that means is, is that she's a one-man woman in that she is faithful to her spouse. And that's what, that's what the requirements for the elders and deacons are about too. Just because somebody had had a previous wife and a previous relationship doesn't mean that they're debarred from life from being an elder or deacon any more than it means that this woman cannot be on the list of widows. It just means that they're faithful. In fact, several modern translations will even translate it, she's faithful to her husband because that's what it means. I prefer putting the one woman man because I like a more static translation where we can figure out what it means. Just translate it word for word. Whenever you translate concepts instead of words, then somebody's opinion gets involved. And I'd rather uh, interpret it and understand it based on my own opinion and understanding and reading than based on the interpretation of some person whose theology I may or may not agree with. So I like a more static translation. That's why uh, I encourage people if you're you know, um, you want to know what the Bible actually says, use a New King James Version, use an American Standard, not New American Standard, American Standard Version, or even uh, go to Young's uh, literal translation, or uh, look up the interlinear, and uh, the tools are all there. Anybody can find out what it actually says in Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic, and and understand it today. Uh, But the translations, you got to be careful, because um, some of them, they're translating concepts and not the actual words, and so sometimes their interpretation is wrong. And um, in fact, in some of the more modern translations, <coughs> NIV, <coughs> I'm talking to you, uh, they're really bad, they're really, really bad. So um, I used to use the 84 nearly inspired version for years for preaching from because it's what everybody had. And I was excited because a few of the problems of the 84 translation they fixed in the 2010 update. But they put way more other mistakes in than they took out. And so uh, it was kind of a wash, you know, it was actually made it worse. And uh, I really do not advise using the 2010 NIV. It's just, um, there's just been too many circumstances where I see them translating it sketchy. And uh, the things that some people point out, like you go to these King James only websites and stuff like that, some of the things they point out aren't actually accurate because uh, they'll say, look, this word's there in the King James, but not in the NIV. Well, that's because it's not there in the Greek. And it's actually improved over the King James there because sometimes they'll, they'll, uh, they'll throw in words that weren't there to make the sentence flow better or whatever. And so all, no translation is perfect. Um, but uh, I prefer a static translation. I, I really like the American Standard Version, the 1901 American Standard Version. The problem is, is it's so archaic and, and it's really hard to read for the average person. So I really feel like the best, easiest to read 
modern translation is the New King James Version, and you're going to get a lot of that in this class, as I'll be quoting from. But sometimes I don't like any of the versions. You get the you you get the, you you get the NKV, the New Kindle version, and uh, you know, I'll just go back and say, well, this is what it says in Greek, because sometimes no translation's good. Um, so. I'm way off. Okay, reputation uh, of her good deeds. What, what are some good, th- what are some things uh, that she's bringing up her children? It doesn't mean she has to have children. These are just, uh, and it says she has to have a reputation for good deeds. And then it says amongst those might be, and these are examples. It's not an exhaustive list. There might be other good things that a woman could do that aren't on this list. And this isn't an exclusive list. This isn't like the qualifications for an elder or deacon where they, she must have all of these things. Check, check, check. This is saying the general the general thing is she's known for her good deeds such as bringing up her children uh, or bringing up children showing hospitality washing the feet of the lord's people uh, helping those in trouble devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds you know i a lot of times when paul does a list at the end he'll give he'll give he'll say well i didn't cover everything so he'll just throw something general out there he'll say devoting yourself to all kinds of good deeds you know like he'll give these lists in um corinthians or galatians about all these sins you know it'll it'll talk about drunkenness carousing you know it gives this thing and then at the end he'll say and such (laughs) or some translations put it and the like you know it's like this isn't all of them but uh this is this gives you a rough idea what i'm talking about and so he's like "Eh, devote yourself to all kinds of good deeds the idea is is that she was a good faithful servant to other people she was a good christian woman before we put her on the list of people we're not just taking in strangers off the street and letting them come on church welfare uh this is actual committed devoted servant of the family of god um so who the church should not support as for the younger widows do not put them on such a list for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to christ they want to marry thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge besides they get into the habit of being idle going about from house to house and do not do they not, blah, blah, and do not only do they become idlers but also busybodies who talk nonsense saying things that they ought not to so what this does not mean is that all women have to marry <laughs> this is not saying that everybody has to to get married what he's saying here is i advise women to marry and we're going to talk in a minute about a contradiction because in in first corinthians chapter 7 paul advises women not to marry make up your mind paul do you want them to marry or do you want them to not marry we'll talk about that contradiction the supposed contradiction here in a minute uh that it's wrong to remarry that's wrong that all women are gossips and busybodies it doesn't say that it's saying that if a person sits around and they're idle and they're not doing anything they're going to be tempted to be a gossip and a busybody or if they're if they're not married they'll be tempted with sensual desire is that only true of women are men not tempted when they're single with sensual desire? Sure. Are men not tempted when they're idle and sitting around doing nothing to run their mouths? Yes, they are. This isn't an indictment of women. That's not what this is. This is an indictment of humanity. And it's talking about our propensity to be overcome by temptation when we put ourselves in certain situations. If you put yourself in a certain situation, you're likely to be tempted. And that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here. And, or that women should pledge to be single. That's quite the opposite. What he's not encouraging, and what this passage outright tells you not to do, is for a woman to be a nun. To pledge that she won't be married and that she'll just be devoted to God and just serve God. That's not the kind of pledge you... Now, you might do that. You might even be called to that. God might, that might be where God calls you to be. That's fine. 
but don't promise I'll never get married. Don't pledge yourself to that. Don't put yourself in that situation. In fact, the Apostle Paul here thinks if you're a younger person, the best thing you can do is get married, raise a family, go about serving other people, and doing the things that the Bible lists here earlier are the, the wonderful blessings that a woman did who's a widow, who's now the kind of woman that the church can feel good about helping. So, what does it mean? Younger widows can find another means uh, of support. Now, the reason that a young woman shouldn't go on the dole of the church and get church uh, welfare if her husband dies and she's young, it's because she can remarry and somebody else in that culture could take care of her. And that was the way in their culture that the system worked. The men uh, provided for their wives and the wives raised the children and managed the homes. And that was their culture. And he was saying, you don't need to um, have a situation where this, uh, this woman is getting charity from the church when she can go remarry and make somebody happy and she can be happy and she can have kids and have a happy life. And so if she has another means of support, then let her do that. If a person has the ability, and today women are even more free, um, a woman can get an education, get a job, and can work support herself, and she doesn't, she doesn't need to be on the church's uh, dole or getting welfare, in essence, from the church, because in our society, a woman, not, even without getting married, she can support herself. And so we, do, we shouldn't be putting somebody on these lists that can get provision somewhere else. If you've got, we already learned earlier in the chapter, if you've got a kid or a grandkid that can support you, they should take care of you first before the church takes care of you. And then he's saying to the younger widows, hey, if you can get remarried, get remarried. Don't put on the church the weight of, of your care when you have other ways to do it. Um, the single who face uh, more sensual temptation. When you're younger, uh, the, um, <laughs> the testosterone, the estrogen is raging higher. Those go down as you get older, and that desire caused by those uh, hormones uh, subsides. And it, it gets less. Now, for, uh, I, I saw a, a guy talking about it once. With women, once they get to like their 40s, it's a steady decline. Whereas with guys, it's like... <laughs> to 60 and then it drops right up but uh it's like uh it's not a steady decline for guys it's a different it's a it's a drop off but um basically as you get older you have you become more mature you become more control of yourself you have less sensual desires a younger person and paul is going to address this situation with timothy and titus and tell them to flee from the evil desires of youth and being young and cause certain temptations that God has a way for those temptations to be removed. God has a way for those needs that a person has, the physical desires a person has, to be met in a godly Christian way. And not only can you meet those desires and needs, what's cool is it produces all kinds of other wonderful things like your best friend, your partner in life, and beautiful children. And God has a plan and a way for this to all happen. And that's what Paul is saying uh, God created the world in a certain way, align with it. And um, well, younger women should not pledge to be single. That's the, the whole idea of a nun or of a priest. We've already learned that's to teach people not to marry. That's the doctrine of demons. We already learned that. And now he's reinforcing the, reinforcing the idea again. And being idle rather than productive brings many temptations. Um, that's one of the problems with 
uh, being rich. I mean, the, the rich, young, girl, socialite, or heiress, being this girl in all kinds of trouble and problems and in the newspaper and, and, and bought, you know, we've, it's like a, you know, it's like a, an expected cultural thing. I mean, anytime you talk about somebody being a rich, young, spoiled heiress, because she's got all this money and she doesn't need to marry and she doesn't need to worry about money. She doesn't need to work. And so she, you know, you get, you get, you get your Paris Hilton, you know, you get what you get. And that kind of situation comes from when you're idle. And today, we got all kinds of problems in our society. We, we, we can't get enough workers to go work because the government's paying them too much to stay at home. And so these people just aren't going back in the workplace saying, what are they? They're idle. And then what are they doing while they're idle? Well, they're drinking, they're, getting, they're doing bad things, they're involved in all kinds of stuff they shouldn't. And crime is through the roof. Why is crime so through the roof? Why, why are these such, th- these things aren't unconnected. It's strange. Since the pandemic, crime has gone up and people on welfare and, and uh, getting paid money by the government to not work has gone up. It's almost like there's a correlation. Yeah, idleness is the devil's workshop. Isn't that the old phrase that you've heard said before? That's not in the Bible, but it, it could be, it's true. Uh, And here he's saying here that idleness is a problem. And I'm telling you, if you're on a, if you're in a car that's sitting on a hill, picture yourself on a a steep street in Cincinnati, okay? And you got the car in neutral and you're not hitting the gas or the brake. It's just going to roll backwards. And we have a proclivity and an inclination, a tendency, if you will, to sin, we're fallen people, broken people in a fallen, broken world. You don't have to plant weeds, they grow on their own, and you don't have to, uh, you don't have to work hard to sin, it's there. And if you're idle, if you're in neutral, and you're not actively engaged in moving forward towards goals, you're gonna get in trouble. The way you overcome evil is not by going, I'm not gonna do evil, I'm not gonna do evil. The way you overcome evil is by doing good. If I tell you, don't picture a pink elephant. Don't picture a pink elephant standing on the stage here next to me. Don't picture it. Don't do it. You all do. But it, it, the way you stop picturing the pink elephant is you say, now picture a blue elephant. Picture a blue elephant. Well, now you're all focused on picturing the blue elephant over here. You forgot all about the pink elephant. And the way that you distract yourself is by being engaged in good. And if you're not engaged in good, you're going to be up to no good. Because what happened with King David? When it's time for the kings to go out to war, did he go out to war like he should have and led his people? No. What did he do? He stayed at home. And then what, it, what, then what couldn't he do? Because he wasn't working and he was sitting around on his throne all day doing nothing. He couldn't sleep at night. So he gets up at night and he's bored and he goes out on the roof. And there, on the top of the other roof, is this beautiful woman, Bathsheba, taking the bath. And he's like, ooh la la, baby, come on up. And he ends up having an affair. How did he get into that trouble? Idleness. And it's not just true of King David. It turns out it can be true of young women in the church as well. You don't want to be idle. You want to be involved doing things, positive things. And he says to the younger women, don't just sit around doing nothing, collecting your check from the church. Go get married. Go raise kids. Go have a life. Go be productive. Produce something with your life. You were made to be a producer. Now, 1 Timothy 
chapter 5, verse 14. So I counsel younger widows to marry to have children. Didn't I already do this? How did I end up back there? Um, no, no, this is right. So I counsel younger widows to marry and to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. So he's saying, my advice to young widows, go remarry, have children, manage your home, don't give the enemy opportunity to slander. Some, in fact, already turned to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so the church can help those widows who are really in need. So some of the women in the church were wealthy. I mean, you, you remember in the Bible, there were wealthy women in the church. Remember Lydia, who had a, basically a mansion that she let uh, Paul and his, his companions stay in? Some of the, she was a dealer in purple from Thyatira. She, she had a very lucrative business uh, in uh, Philippi. And so she was able to uh, support people. And there were some of the women in the church, they were already ha had taken in a lady. Maybe there was a, a lady who was a widow in the church and they didn't put it on the dole of the church. They said, just come stay at my house. Just come live with me. And he's saying, if you're doing that, don't put them on the church's dole. If, if you can afford it and you can do it, you can take care of them, then take care of them. And sometimes we don't have to turn to the church for charity if God has blessed us so much financially that we can just cover it ourselves. Just, just take them in yourself. We're supposed to treat each other like family. Remember what we learned already about family at the beginning? Treat the older men like fathers. Treat the younger, uh, the older women like mothers. Treat the younger uh, women like brothers and sisters. We're supposed to be like family. And if there was a young woman in the church and the lady's not her biological mother, mother but she loves her to death, take her in. Isn't that what um, the ancestor of Jesus did? Isn't that the story of Ruth and Naomi? That the younger one made sure that the older one was taken care of? Even though she wasn't her biological? She didn't have any responsibility to her anymore? Her husband died, but she still took care of her. And she says, where you go, I go. And that's, that's right. That's the right thing to do. Um, so contradiction, 1 Corinthians 7, 8. So it says there, I counsel younger women to, to marry. Okay, but what, is, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7, 8? But I say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them if they remain as I am. He was single. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what Paul was saying was, is hey, if you can be happy being single, stay single. And, um, but if you can't handle it, if you're really tempted to do wrong, if the youthful desires are overtaking it, then get married. Um, it is not the only reason. It's not the most important reason. But it is an important reason. One of the reasons for marriage is sex. One of the reasons for, and, and that's seen earlier in this, it says when a husband's not to deny his wife what he owes her, and a wife's not to deny her husband, you're not to withhold your sex from each other. And if you do, only for a little short time of prayer and fasting, then come back together so that, that you don't fall into the devil's trap. And so there are part of the the reason for marriage is not just to have children but to fulfill the sexual desires that you have whether you're done having children or or not there's that desire there and the place where it's to be met that physical intimacy between husband and wife is only in marriage 
And that's one of the reasons you marry. And so Paul never forbids marriage, but you say, well, why is he in one place saying, hey, young widows, go get remarried and have kids. The other place is saying, I think you'd be better off staying as I am. Well, that's the thing is if you pull a verse out of here and a verse out of there, you can come up with goofy ideas. You have to put what he says in 1 Corinthians 7 into context. Now, when he's writing to Timothy, dealing with the people in Ephesus, it wasn't a time of persecution. But Paul explains why he's giving these special rules in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says it right in verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Now, the Bible says it's not good for a man to be alone. Am I right? Now, either he says it's good for a man to be alone. So which is it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? No. Normally, under most circumstances, it's good for a man to be alone. But because of the crisis they were in, what crisis? They were being rounded up and killed for their faith. Now, um, is, it a, is it a good thing for a man to marry and have a wife? Yeah, sure. Okay, what if he's in war and he's in the middle of a war? Is it good for him to take his wife with him? No. Because that's going to distract him from the battle at hand. And they were in a crisis at this point. And uh, it, it would be hard to be tortured and be faithful to Christ. How much harder to see somebody torture your wife in front of you and tell you to deny Christ. That'd be tough, guys. And Paul was saying because of the present crisis, it's better to remain safe. But this is not, his rules in 1 Corinthians 7 are not about all the time. They're about, he qualifies it. So when we look at a rule that's given in the Bible and it's given a reason and then it's given a qualification because of the present crisis, okay? Are we right now in America under that crisis? No, we're not under that present crisis right now. So is it better for us to remain unmarried? or so? Well, no, it's good, for, it's good for a person to marry. That's a good thing. That's where the Timothy advice he gives comes in. But what if we were in uh, Iran or Afghanistan where people are being tortured and killed for the faith? Well, there it might be better to not marry. But even in that circumstance, Paul says, if you can't control yourself, go ahead and get married. If you two are struggling with temptation, get married. And so there's not a contradiction. He qualifies it and you've got to put it into context. And many things that are support, supposedly contradictions in the Bible, you get on the internet, you can find lists of them, supposed contradictions. Um, they're not contradictions at all when you go back and put it into context. And uh, by the way, my dad did a whole class on that. Um, he uh, he um, went through and answered them. But he's like, when I would, one piece of advice, and this is a great piece of advice. He's like, people come to him and they got this list of 10 supposed contradictions or things that prove the Bible's false. And dad says, look, I don't have time to answer all 10 of your objections. What I want you to do is I want you to pick out your three strongest ones. Pick out your three favorite and I'll answer those. And when I've answered those sufficiently, we'll assume the rest are all wrong too. Because I don't got time to answer every little supposed contradiction. Because some of them, you got to go back and teach a whole bunch of historical context so people understand what in the world's going on and what, what it really means. 
Um, but if you want uh, some stuff on that, Summit has a whole class. Dad did a whole class on supposed contradictions in the Bible because he kept getting them all the time. And he's like, I'm just going to knock it out. I'm just going to take care of them all at once. And he just, that way I don't have to do it again. I can just say, here, listen to this. Because <laughs> it gets tedious uh, to have to repeat the same defenses over and over again for people who um, are confused because most people are biblically ignorant today. It was a lot easier when dad was young when people at least knew the Bible stories and at least knew some of the culture of the Bible. People are so ignorant of the Bible that it's alien and they read it and they're offended by it because they have no idea of the culture or the background of the history and they didn't go to Sunday school and uh, they, they, weren't, they didn't go to VBS and they weren't taught and they just don't know. And so it's a lot of work. That's where that patient, careful instruction comes in. And that's how oh, that's hard pill for me to swallow that whole well, patiently go back and relay again these foundations. So there's no contradiction here. So those really in need is who you help. The church has a responsibility to take care of widows. Grandchildren, children have a bigger responsibility. And if there's another means of support, use it as to not use up church resources uh, for, so they can save them for those who are truly in need. So if you're young, remarry. If you're already taking care of this widow and you have the means to do it, keep taking care of her. Don't put her on the church's dole. Only use the church's resources for the widows who really need the help. That's Paul's instruction. Okay, so that's your rules about widows and taking care of widows. And, and let me just say this, by the way. Uh, you don't have an obligation to give money Everybody comes up and knocks on your door at church and asks or calls up the church and asks. You don't have a responsibility to help every person that asks. Every, you don't have responsibility to every person on the street corner sitting there holding a sign, lying, saying they'll work for food. Um, you have, you have, if you want to help people, then you can help people. If you feel moved in your heart to help people, then you go help people. I'm not discrediting that. But um, your first responsibility is to your family and to your church family. And then, as you have opportunity, if you have the money and you want to, you can help other people as well. But your responsibility is to your biological immediate family and to your church family. That's your responsibility. And even though, even in, within that, there's qualifiers. <laughs> there's fine print. If your family member won't work, then they should need. If the person shouldn't be on the list of widows, then we don't help them. There's qualifications that need to be met. One of the things that we do is we give food and money to an inner church food bank in Johnson County. They don't do any proselytizing or uh, teaching of doctrine so that all kinds of churches can help. But we give food to them and supplies to them. And then what they do with it is, is people come and they say, hey, I need food or I need assistance with my gas bill or I need rent. I don't have time to go through and say, is this a con artist or is this not a con artist? But the food bank does. And because we support them and because we help them, I send them there and I say, hey, you go here, go, call this number or go to this location. You fill out an application. If you're truly in need, they'll give you food. They'll give you help with your housing. They'll help you with utilities. If you're truly in need, they'll meet your need. You need clothes, they'll give you clothes. What you truly need. And some of them are like, well, you know, I'm not going there. Well, that's because they've already tried to con them and it didn't work. And, and that automate, when, they, when they're not interested in that, when they don't even want their number, that already tells me they wanted one thing. I had a lady come up to 
I was at Jerome Christian Church, and at the time I lived in the parsonage. I didn't live in the parsonage the whole time I was there, but for the first two years I was there, I lived in the parsonage. She came up and knocked on my door. And I tell you what, when you live in a parsonage next to the church, you are going to get asked for stuff all the time. So knock, knock, knock. I'm on my way up to Michigan from Indianapolis, and I'm almost out of gas. And I'm thinking to myself, how is Greentown, Indiana, on the way to Michigan from Indianapolis? And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thinking this lady is just some lady from Kokomo, Kokomo going around from church to church. In fact, sometimes when these people would come around, we had a little email thing. We'd send it to all the churches in Greentown, say, here they come. They're in a red whatever, you know. And she says, I just need gas to get up to see my... And, and I've heard this con so many times. You know how many people were on the way to see their mom with cancer in Michigan when I was in Cincinnati? I mean, that... Come up with a new lie, at least. You know, if you're going to lie and con, at least come up, be a fresh and original. Something other than my mom's dying of cancer in Michigan. And uh, so she says that, and she says, I need gas. And I said, okay, I'll buy you gas. And she goes, oh, no, no, pastor, you don't need to go all the way to the gas station and bother with it. If you just give me the money, I'll go, I'll go get it. You don't need to get out of your home. And that's when I knew. She didn't need gas, and she wasn't on her way to Michigan. So I walked out and I said, okay, show me that your gas tank's empty. So she goes out and she's like, she's like fake turn it and they get the car won't start. And she's like, the car, you know, car won't start. And the needles will start to come up. She turns, I don't know, it won't start. I don't know what's wrong. And I said, oh, here, let me help you. And I reach around, I turn the car on. It starts right up and the gas gauge goes up to full. She, and she's like, oh, the gauge must be broke. And I looked at her and I said, you're not lying to me. I'm a representative of God. I serve Him. He pays my bills. My money is His money. You came here to this church because I'm a Christian and you're going to try to steal from me because of my good intentions and my desire to help people who are in need. But you didn't lie to me. You lied to God and to the Holy Spirit. And when I read about people doing that in the Bible... God usually strikes them dead pretty soon afterwards. If I was you, I would do some repenting because you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And if you don't repent of what you've done, God's going to punish you. And I will pray for you that you're going around trying to steal from Christians and from people who really need my help, who really need my extra money. Those people are out there and you're taking from them the money that I give to benevolence you were trying to steal. Because that money is going to go to help somebody. That money that I set aside each week to help somebody, and I set some aside every week, it's going to go to help somebody, and you are going to take that money. You weren't stealing from me. You were stealing from God. And you need to be scared to death of that. And she cussed at me and drove off. I don't help just everybody who asks for help. I... Um, there's sometimes I've helped people where I thought they might be conning me, they might not, I didn't know. And I helped them and I thought, well, if they're conning me, it's on them. And sometimes I'll put stuff out there on purpose just to help people willfully and some people might take advantage of it, but I know I'm helping others. Um, when we go out and help the homeless, I'm sure some of the homeless that we help really aren't worthy of the help. But we're just throwing out the love of God and the grace of God. And sometimes I'll help people you know, but other times when I know that somebody's stealing and I see it, I don't help them. <laughs> In fact, that's an opportunity to confront them. 
Uh, I remember Rosie, she was a, a homeless lady when I was a bike courier in Cincinnati, and she was always out panhandling every day, Rosie was, and I got to know her name and everything, and, and one day I was riding my bike by, and a lady came out of uh, Saks Fifth Avenue or whatever, one of those fancy stores right down on Fifth Street in Cincinnati. That's back when Cincinnati had a, a mall downtown. It was nice. You actually go shop there and uh, not get shot or whatever, but... Um, she was coming out real rich lady and she gives her like 50 bucks and she's like uh, i remember seeing her run over oh, i got 50 bucks i got 50, running over to her friend you know she was so excited later on that day i was on the other side of town i was uh and i was coming out of a, a company that does advertising and i was taking uh, some advertising stuff over to procter and gamble and i'm coming out of there and she sat outside the door asking this lady for money I said, Rosie, did you already spend that 50 bucks that lady gave you outside of Saks Fifth Avenue this morning? <laughs> and that lady was getting in a purse and goes, oh, <laughs> and walks off. <laughs> and Rosie starts yelling at me and swinging at me. Uh, Rosie wasn't, uh, that was a dangerous thing I did. But uh, I, I just, for me, when people are stealing, the, you want to make sure that what, that what little we have that we have to give to other people outside the responsibilities to our family and others, that it's going to somebody who can be helped and who, who is worthy of that. And this passage, this chapter teaches me that. that you don't just give to everybody. That's, that's not biblical. It's not right. It's not what Christ intended. And it's not what the apostles taught. So, okay. On to the next topic. Verse 17 the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor. Now, I told you the word elders should usually mean just older people, but this isn't talking about just older people. Why? What does it say there in this context that let me know that this is about a church leadership position? And that, uh, that translation of the word elder. Yeah, they direct the affairs of the church. So the context demands that we, we don't translate it as older men, but that we translate it as elders of the church. This is a leadership position. The, the elders of the church, who, what are the other two names for elders in the Bible? Shepherds and, or pastors and overseers, which is also translated as bishops. So those two things, shepherds uh, and pastors and elders, same position. So the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. I was driving by the other day, the Arby's in Whiteland, and it said, um, uh, if you work, you eat free. I'm like, I work. <laughs> Come on. Oh, it turns out you have to work there. Uh, they need to put that on the sign. They didn't have that qualifier there. But uh, evidently at the Arby's in Whiteland, if you work there, they don't uh, muzzle the ox while you're treading out the grain. And uh, they got the meats. So uh, it sounds like a good deal to me. Uh, I could eat them out of house and home, I think. But um, we don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. When it, an ox is doing his work, he eats some of the grain, that's, that's fair game. And um, we'll talk more about that principle here in a second. But the, the thing is, is elders who give a lot of time to leading the church, to prayer, to ministry, to counseling, to preaching, to teaching, 
that, that are doing an, el- an elder's job and they give a lot of time to it, we should pay them. We all, you know, believe in paying the preacher. And we understand that this same scripture is applied to evangelists in, in another place. And we'll talk about that in a minute for Paul. We, we, most churches pay the preacher. Why don't we have paid elders? And that is a very biblical thing. Okay, so um, you got to pay the sower. Now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in verse 7, and talk about this concept. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? (laughs) Turns out when you work for the military, you get paid for it. You're supposed to. Um, maybe you don't get paid very good, but you know, the, in, in America, if you sign up, they'll pay for your college education. Um, they decided after World War II, all those soldiers who served so faithfully, uh, they passed the GI Bill and, and sent them off to college. And they passed, you know, they created these VA hospitals to give them health care. And this is one uh, area where um, I kind of agree, uh, that's not a ha- free handout. That turns out they risked their lives and earned it. And somebody who risks their life and defends their country, they are taking low pay, high risk job, and if we give them great benefits like lifelong health care or we give them uh, a free college education, I don't think it's really free. I think they earned it. And so I, I'm all for it. The only thing I would do different is, is I would let them go to a regular hospital uh, and get regular health care and the government pays for it then send them to these VA hospitals because the places are stinking death traps. Because anytime the government runs anything, it has the efficiency of the post office and the customer service of the DMV. And uh, I don't want them in charge of my health care. I don't know about you, but um, the... Boy <laughs> hey, thanks for serving your country. Here's some terrible health care. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, does soldier serve his own expense? No. He gets paid for fighting. Who plants a vineyard does not eat some of the grapes? Oh, that'd be a lousy deal if you had to work the vineyard but didn't get any of the grapes. Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of sharing in the harvest. If we've sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much that we reap material harvest? If others have this right of support, shouldn't we have it all the more? You see, a person who serves in the church and gives full time to ministry deserves compensation. Ah, Maybe they even give part-time work. Then they deserve part-time pay. The laborer is worthy of his hire. One of the great injustices that the Bible rebukes again and again is people who pay people and they don't pay them well. Or they don't pay them on time. God gets really upset when you don't pay someone a fair wage. That's like a biblical principle nobody talks about. And if you don't pay them at all and they work and you don't pay them, that's wrong. And I'm telling you, if you have a revival speaker in, you, you pay him good. He just left his family for three days, for five days, for seven days. It took him hours and hours and hours to prepare each one of those messages. Well, he only, he only worked one hour a night. <laughs> yeah, but he couldn't do his work at home. He was away from, who else would go on a business trip 
and only get paid for the one hour that they had the meeting in the foreign country. No, they would get their meals paid for. They would get their travel expenses paid for. They would get paid their daily wage, even if they weren't working most of the day. It was only a one-hour meeting, you know, wherever. No. You, get, you would get uh, compensated for all of those things. Companies do that. And if they didn't, the people would be upset. People would be up in arms. Oh, this company doesn't treat people right. And yet the church doesn't treat preachers right. And the church doesn't treat elders right. Elders who give hours and hours of their time and their devotion and their teaching and we're not compensating them? And then we wonder why we have bad shepherding, uh, missing shepherding, uh, bad Sunday school lessons without the study, without the, you know. We ought to be sending uh, our elders and deacons to summit, not just our preachers, to get Bible training. We need to be sending them, let them get good Bible education. And if they work hard and they give... Now, if a guy's retired and he's got enough money and he doesn't want to accept it, okay, then he can do it for free if that's what he wants, if he's got the money. But I think that it's wrong to put somebody in the position of an elder. Well, when all an elder does is make and force his opinion on people and meets once a month in a little meeting somewhere in the church and makes up a bunch of rules and that's what an elder does, okay, I can see not compensating him. But that's not what a biblical elder does at all. What a biblical elder does is he shepherds people and he's watching people and he's going after people that, that disappeared from the church and he's teaching people and he's counseling people and he's teaching a Sunday school class and he's leading a small group or whatever. He's filling in for the preacher when he's out of town. That guy deserves to be financially compensated for his hard work and to not do it is to rob him and to rob God and it's wrong. The sower deserves to eat some of the harvest. And if he's sowing a spiritual seed, then he deserves. And we wonder why nobody wants to be an elder. The guys that, you know, that are, that are old enough, that have raised good, and, and they're still working a job. They're still trying to put maybe one last kid through college or whatever. Or they're trying to enjoy some time with their wife now that they're old. And, and we're taking them away and not compensating them. It's just not right. It's just wrong. We, we got to pay the sower. And you got to not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. To do so is to sin. It's wrong. I remember my dad, he went to one church and, uh, and they paid him so little that when he got home and looked at the check, because they handed him a check, he didn't look at it. He got home and looked at the check. It was so little. He'd been gone a whole week and they paid him just like a few hundred bucks. And he sent him the check back. He said, evidently, you all need this more than me. You can't even afford to pay me. And they're like, oh, we're sorry, we'll send you more. And he was, he's like, no. Um, save it for the next guy that you have preached so you can actually pay him what he deserves. He's like, you can do this to me because I have another source of income. You know, I sell annuities. Most preachers don't. Most preachers are already making below average salaries for their education level. And they have to take their time and drive somewhere, be away from their family for a week, and prepare all these sermons and do all this and spend a whole, this whole time, and then they give them nothing. And we do it to singers, and we do it to speakers, and then we wonder why nobody wants to go into it, and why the quality stinks, and why, um, well, it's because nobody's, <laughs> smart people aren't going to keep doing that. I remember... You know, uh, 
It, it's just been crazy. In my, in my ministry experience, it's been crazy how poorly I've been paid many, many, many times. You say, well, well, he worked for three hours, so we'll pay for that. No, what about the drive time? How long was the guy away from home? How long did it take him to write that sermon? How long, how much effort did he put in? How much education do you have to give where he knew how to explain those things? And when you don't pay someone adequately, um, they're not going to want to come back and they're not going to give you their best. Pay what they deserve to be paid. It's true of preachers and it's true of elders. Funded through tithes and offerings. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.13. Do you not know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what's offered at the altar? What's he referring to? The Old Testament, right? So now he's made two Old Testament references. Notice, and, and by the way, this will help you understand the law of Moses. When God gave this law, don't muzzle ox when it's treading out the grain. Was that because he cared so much about oxen? Paul says no. What was it? That was written because their physical reality is an analogy of our spiritual reality. It was teaching a principle. So in the Old Testament, is it, would it be immoral to muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain today? No, that's not, we're not under that law. Why did God give that rule though? To create the principle that the person who works deserves to eat. They deserve to, be, to have their needs taken care of. And there's so many things in the Old Testament law, it's not even really about just that law for back then. It was to teach a principle for us to apply to today. And the same thing with the priests. Those who served at the temple got their food from the temple and they got a share of what was offered in the altar. They would take the meat of the sacrifice, they would put it in a thing, they would boil it. They were supposed to stick a fork in and whatever landed on the fork and came out was what they were supposed to eat. Now, all Eli's sons, they were bad because they weren't supposed to eat any of the fat. They were supposed to cut the fat off and the fat was supposed to be burned to God. And, and that's the good part. That's what makes your steak smell good on the grill. Is that fat cooking? It was a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, praise the Lord. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like the fat's the good part. And so, but Eli's sons, they were eating all the fat. And so was Eli. And, and they were like rotund. And God was very, uh, very displeased. In fact, when God, God had Eli's sons killed in battle, and when they came back and told Eli about it, he was so fat because he was eating, he was eating the fat that his sons gave him, which he wasn't supposed to. He was so fat that he fell back into his chair. You know, you imagine somebody just told you your sons died, and you just kind of fall back in the chair. And he was so fat, the chair collapsed, and he fell off of a wall and broke his neck and died. And true story, it's right there in the Bible. And uh, don't eat the fat, people. Um, it's not good for you. In the same way, uh, in the same way as they would eat from what was offered, so how were they supported? With tithes and offerings. With the tithes that people gave and with the offering people gave of sacrifices, that's how they ate. How were priests taken care of? Tithes and offerings. Verse 14. In the same way. Some of your Bibles, uh, does anybody get another translation there? It might say um, in like manner or, um, or what. The idea in Greek for this word is it's in the exact same way. Okay, in like manner, in the same way. In the same way the priests were taken care of in the temple. How were they taken care of? Tithes, offerings. In the same way, those who preach the gospel what, do, what is the noun for a person who's a preacher of the gospel? Evangelist. So 
That's me. I'm an evangelist. I'm a preacher of the gospel. That's the biblical term evangelist for the guy who's the preacher at your church. He's not the pastor. The elders are the pastors. He's the evangelist or the preacher. And those who have preached the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. So now we have established in the Bible that elders who give full time to being the elder should be paid for it. And guys who give full time to preaching the gospel and that's their job should be paid for it. And th- th- how should they be paid? Where is that money supposed to come from? Tithes and offerings. The same way God provided for the priests. Now don't tell me that we're not supposed to tithe. Don't tell me that because we are supposed to tithe because that's how we're to pay for the preaching. Today, the tithe all goes to the building or the tithe goes to all kinds of other stuff. But does the tithe, the tithe its initial purpose is to, is to fund ministry, the people doing the ministry. And that's what the tithes and offerings are for, is to fund ministry of the church. And um, if you're paying for a building but not a preacher, you won't pay your preacher because you've got to pay for a building, you've got it backwards. This is what God has Commanded. Some of your Bibles there, instead of saying commanded, it'll say ordained. Paying the preacher is God ordained. I remember I had a friend in my sophomore year who was a Jehovah Witness, and they were saying preachers shouldn't be paid because Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in paying the preacher. And I turned to this passage. And they're like, well, uh, uh, uh. what do you say? Paying a person who gives their time to a job is the right thing to do. And the other reason I know that we tie this, we're supposed to do proportional giving. Look what it says. Now about the collection of the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do on the first day of every week. Now why were they getting together on the first day of the week? Take the Lord's Supper. So they're already getting ready to take, uh, take the Lord's Supper. On the first day of each, each of you should set aside a sum of money, just willy-nilly, whatever you want. Oh, what's it say? In keeping with your income. Your your giving should be proportional to your income. If you make more, you should give more. If you make less, you should give less. If you're out of work and you didn't make anything, you don't have any income, you shouldn't feel obligated to give. You can if you want. That's an offering. But you don't have to pay a tithe. But on your income, you should be proportionally giving. And um, Abraham tithe to Melchizedek and Jesus Christ is a priest after the order of who? And you are a child of Abraham by faith and you should be tithing to Melchizedek as Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. You should be tithing to Christ. You should be giving proportionally from your income in the same way the priests and the uh, in, in the Old Testament were funded is the same way evangelist is to be funded and that's through tithes and offerings. So don't tell me that a Christian shouldn't tithe. They should. Um, it's absolutely the right thing to do. In fact, God says in the book of Malachi, he complains to the people of Israel, and they weren't tithing. And he said, the tithe is mine, saith the Lord. And he told them they had purses with holes in it. And all the money they made went right back out. And I tell you, I'm, I'm warning you, if you're not generous and you make money and you don't give to the church, God will get that some other way through some other bill. 
Something's going to break down. You're going to need to replace this or replace that. You'll pay. You're not keeping that money. That's God's and he'll take it out of you one way or the other. And I'm not joking. That's what the Bible teaches. The tithe belongs to God. It's not yours. You can't go, well, well. And he'll take care of your needs. I remember one time, I was early in ministry, Oak Forest Church of Christ, Brookville, Indiana, my very first ministry. I was young, married, new house, lots of bills. And we were driving this rust bucket $300 Ford Tempo. And I wanted to get something nicer. So I went out and did something crazy. And I got a, a Dodge Intrepid. And I had a $149 uh, um, car payment once a month. And that was coming due that week. It was due on Tuesday. And I didn't have enough money to pay that car payment and pay my tithe. And ironically, they're about the same. I think it was $130 I needed to give into my tithe that week. And so, and I'd already committed to God when I got married. I was going to give 15% of everything I ever made to him, and I have. And so uh, I write that check. And there we didn't collect offering and trays. We had a little box in the back that said tithes and offerings on it. It was one of David Slagle's ideas. And so we'd go back. That way we never made guests feel like we were just asking them for money. I kind of liked it. And so I went back to the little box and I remember going, well, I don't know how I'm making that car payment. (laughs) And I put that check in there and and then I was shaking people's hands, you know. And afterwards, and then Ralph Jester comes up to me, who's the treasurer of the church. And he says, hey, Kendall, um, uh, somebody who didn't want you to know it was them, just anonymously, said that they felt moved by God to to help you out financially. And, And here's a check for, you know, 150 bucks. Car payment was paid. And God provided. And I have never been afraid to give God what's His. He has always taken care of me. I've always had nice stuff. I've I've not gone without food. Um, And God's provided for me. And I am a living testimony that if you will be generous and you will give and you will support God's work, you know, um, that He will provide for you. And that's the right thing to do. Uh, what if we paid elders to shepherd instead of hiring more staff or ministers or counselors to do the elder's job? What if we didn't hire some guy that isn't even qualified to be an elder to do the elder's job and actually paid the elders that we have? What if we paid elders to do the job? Why do I only know of one church who with paid elders in 50 years of ministry. Well, 50 years of life, not ministry. I'm not that old yet. So like 30 years of ministry. Um, Why do I only know of one church that paid elders? That's, That's messed up. Whose job is it to see that elders are paid? The evangelist. I guess the preacher doesn't want competition in the income department. If your church is growing, don't hire an associate minister, hire an elder. 
And if we can outsource and hire a guy from the outside to come be a preacher because we don't got anybody in our church qualified to be a preacher, why can't we outsource and go hire somebody outside of our church to come be an elder? There's a lot of good guys who are older and they don't have the energy or uh, stamina to be an evangelist anymore. But they know God's word. They raise their kids right. They've got a good wife. They're qualified to be an elder. They meet the qualifications of an elder. Hire that older ministry. He can't go get a church. Nobody will hire him because they want a preacher that's going to stay for 20 years. And, you know, he's in, his, he's in his 60s or maybe even 70s. Hire him. Get a good 5, 10 years of ministry more out of him. He's getting some income in his older years. And he's not sitting around being idle. Hire him. And put, make him an elder. Let him, he's gotten all these years of ministry experience. And put him in there. You got these guys that, um, you know, they're getting older and uh, their company is wanting to downsize and push them out because they don't want to pay their health insurance. <laughs> Hire them. Hire these people. We need paid elders. Um, so, verse 19. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. Who is to take accusations against elders? The evangelist. Who ordains elders? Well, we're going to see that here in a second. The evangelist. So if you ordain a guy and then he's not doing his job or he's doing something wrong as an elder and you got one person comes and says well he's you know he's a rat and and you go to him and say is this true and he says no that's not true they're they're not telling the truth don't accept the accusation with one witness who might be mad at him it's i don't know if you guys know this or not but sometimes church members get mad at elders and talk bad about them and say things that aren't true i don't know if you've ever heard of that but it happens um don't accept one. But if you've got multiple accusations, people saying he did this, I saw him do it, then you accept the accusation. But those elders who are sitting are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. Now, real quick before we take our break. Multiple witnesses are required. This is from Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This was especially true in capital offenses where the penalty was death. You had to have multiple witnesses. One of my problems with our modern justice system is it takes too long to execute judgment on a murderer. But you're like, well, what if they're not guilty? We wouldn't want to kill somebody who's guilty, oh, but we want to imprison someone for 50 years who's guilty? Uh, well, what if they're, you know, no. Find out whether they're really guilty. And err on the side of innocent until proven guilty. I would rather an, a guilty person not be prosecuted because there's not enough evidence than an innocent person to be prosecuted and put in jail or killed. And that's the biblical view. There has to be multiple witnesses. And if there's not multiple witnesses, you don't convict. The problem today is that the burden of proof is not high enough. 
But if the burden of proof is met and they're convicted, then judgment isn't swift enough. The Bible teaches very high burden of proof and then swift execution of judgment. And we don't do either of those. We have a very low uh, burden of proof. You don't want me on your jury if you don't got a good case. Because I'm not finding anybody guilty unless I know they are guilty. And you're going to have to have more than one witness to convince me. You are going to have to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. I'm not finding anybody guilty on a jury unless they're guilty. I'm not going, well, I think they might be. Uh, look, no, they are or they aren't. And if you can't prove it, don't prosecute. Wait till you got the evidence. 2 Corinthians 13.1 Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is an Old Testament concept from the law, but was it just for uh, murder cases that this was written? No, this is, a, this is a principle for life. See, those Old Testament laws give us principles for today. There's value to the Old Testament and stuff that's in there. It's teaching principles. Yes, yeah, true, we're not under every law in the Old Testament anymore, but the principles are timeless. So, um, not the normal confrontation policy. In Matthew chapter 18, what it teaches, and I'm gonna, instead of reading it going on and on, I'll just summarize. If somebody does you wrong, you're to go to them what? Privately. And then, if they won't repent still, then two or three witnesses. And then if they won't repent and they keep doing it, then you tell the whole church. That's the policy that Jesus gave in Matthew 18. That's the normal policy. That is not the policy for an elder. The elder has a different policy. If he sins, rebuke him in front of everyone. You got two or three witnesses come forward and say, this dude did this and he has and he needs to be rebuked. You do it publicly. Because when you step into leadership, it says, uh, James says not many of you should be teachers uh, because you know that those who teach will be judged more strictly. Before you step into a leadership position, realize you are putting yourself forward as a leader and you should be held to a higher standard. The problem in America today is our leaders are held to a lower standard. The law doesn't seem to apply to them. If I took classified material and emailed it to somebody and then erased the hard drive, they'd throw me in jail and throw away the key. But Hillary Clinton can do it all day long. Nobody does anything. It's not prosecuted. And they're like above the law. And that's, and not just, not just her. I mean, I, she's easiest, I mean, that's low-hanging fruit. But uh, lots of people Operate above all the, the retirement requirements and the investment requirements and, and all kinds of stuff for Congress is different than you and I. The health insurance stuff, it's different. They've got it better than we do. They're like above the law. And that's a problem. And leaders in the Bible, though, they're held to a stricter standard. And if you want good, solid leadership so people be afraid to do wrong in leadership positions, then hold them to a higher standard than the average person. And that's what God says. God says we're to hold our leaders to stricter judgment. And if you're an elder and you go sinning, it is the evangelist's job to get up in front of the church and to rebuke you. And if you don't want to be under that kind of scrutiny, don't become an elder. And if you don't want to have to rebuke elders publicly, don't become a preacher. Because that's what the Bible says to do. 
We will stop right there and come back and talk about favoritism. Okay, we are in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. Now, <clears throat> Paul has to give him some encouragement here because he just told him a bunch of really hard stuff. He just told him, there's some people at church that want you to give them money because they're widows, but you can't fund them. Um, you need to take some of the church's money and pay the elders. And... Um, and then he tells him, um, it's your responsibility to receive accusations against sinning elders. And it's your responsibility to remove or reprove those elders. Um, there's a mutual, mutual accountability. Anytime you have a pyramid, and what most Christian churches, Churches of Christ done, they've created a pyramid with the small group of elders on top. And everybody under them. And anytime you have a pyramid... That's not biblical church leadership. Um, you have evangelists who are ordained by elders and accountable to the elders. And you have elders who are ordained by the evangelists who are accountable to the evangelist. And there needs to be a mutual accountability. There's a way to remove a preacher who's no good, isn't there? There's a way to remove a deacon who's no good. How do you remove an elder who's no good? What's God's plan for that? God has a plan for a moving elder who's no good. It's the evangelist. And it's his responsibility. Now, Timothy's a young dude. He's going into this church. Some of these elders have been there for a while. Paul had warned them years before that some of them would become wolves and ravage the sheep. And now Paul sent him there to take care of the wolves he predicted. And that right at the beginning of the book, chapter 1, we saw Paul telling him, I sent you there to silence them. Now, that doesn't mean he was supposed to kill them. But how do you silence a false teacher? A false elder? You remove them from their position. And there needs to be a mutual accountability between those leadership positions. And then, so he just asked him, to, and then he said, uh, he gave him earlier instructions on who to uh, lay hands on and who to ordain and who not to ordain as an elder. So he's given all these instructions all this responsibility says teach these things, command these things, exhort, do it with all authority. And so he's doing this. And then now he says to him, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. So what do the elect angels have to do with it? What are the elect angels going to do on the day of judgment? Who separates the sheep from the goats? Who separates the righteous from the unrighteous, the saved from the lost? Who separates the wheat from the shaft in that parable that Jesus gave? Who who, who's going to create two groups on the day of judgment? These elect angels. That's why Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll be confess you before my Father in heaven and before the holy angels. If you'll not confess me before men, neither will I confess you before my Father in heaven nor before the holy angels. What are the holy, why do you need to be confessed to angels? Because when they come and say, hey Jesus, what do I do with this one? We want him to say, ah, oh, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter my happiness. We don't want him to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, cast him into outer darkness where there's a weeping gnashing of teeth. Jesus is going to confess us to angels. 
And so he's saying, look, in the sight of God, in the sight of Christ, and in the sight of the elect angels, keep these instructions without partiality. Do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Now what does he mean laying on of hands? Who is he going to lay hands on? New elders. He was sent there to remove some bad ones. They might need some new ones. Don't be quick. Don't be hasty in who you ordain. <clears throat> Churches want elders bad. If they don't have elders, they want them real bad. But don't be hasty. No elders is better than bad elders, unqualified elders. You don't want to rush into some because some things are will cause more trouble and even if you remove that elder, you can't remove the damage he did. And so be very careful, very slow, very deliberate in if you're a preacher in laying hands on somebody and making them an elder. Do not be hasty in it. So play favorites how? <laughs> Exodus 23.3 Do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. You ever seen people where it's this bad, they always assume the poor person is in the right and the big corporation is evil. Well, that's a false assumption. It's not always true. The poor person isn't always the one who's right. And poor people, as we'll find out later on in this chapter, can be, or the next chapter, can be greedy as well. Greed isn't at the exclusive uh, sin of the rich. You don't got to be rich to be greedy. <laughs> and, and then it says, Leviticus, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Don't show favoritism because they're a big rich corporation. Don't show favoritism. Don't give favoritism to the poor. Don't give favoritism to the rich. Don't uh, show favoritism because somebody because they're not famous. Or don't show favoritism to somebody because they are famous. Don't show favoritism. When we picture Lady Justice in, in, our, in our courts and in the Supreme Court, when they carve the little statue of Lady Justice holding the scales, what is on her head? Why do we have a blindfold on her, on, over her eyes? So she's because that's supposed to mean that she's not showing favoritism. Justice is supposed to be blind. The, the, the rules and the laws are supposed to apply the same for the poor as they are for the rich. Now, has there been times in the past in our country where we showed favoritism to whites over blacks? Yeah. Was that a, you know, an embarrassing part of our history? Absolutely. Is there have been times where we showed favoritism to whites over Asians in our country? Yes. Did we show favoritism to whites over Native Americans? Absolutely. So to set it right, do we show favoritism to blacks over whites? Is that setting it right? Favoritism is wrong any way that you swing it. And it is not justice to show favoritism to somebody because in the past, their people were harmed. Or show favoritism against somebody because in the past, people of their same race did something wrong. 
That's wrong. Favoritism is wrong any way you do it. Racism is wrong any way you do it. And you can call it affirmative action if you want, but it's still racism. It's still favoritism. Favoritism is wrong. Now you can never create, get an equal outcome. No matter what you do in this world, you'll never have an equal outcome because people don't make the same choices and their choices affect things. But what you can do is give equal opportunity. And what you can give is equal justice. And that's what, that's what justice is. Justice is everybody plays by the same rules and the rules aren't geared to favor one group over another. And today, we don't apply that in our government. And there's all kinds of rules that favor one group over another. And it's wrong. It's not only wrong in our government, it's wrong in the church. You ever, you ever see where a bunch of the leaders in the church are all related? The preacher married the elder's daughter. You think he's going to get up and rebuke that elder? You think there's going to be some nepotism and some favoritism? Or even if they're not related. Ever see church leaders where it seems like the preacher has his favorites? Or an elder has his favorites? It's not right. Like, I, I, I always giggle when an elder is against something, against something, against something. He doesn't, this new thing, that's, a, that's worldly, it's a newfangled thing, until his grandkid wants to be involved in it. Then all of a sudden it's okay, we can do that. Favoritism is wrong. And Paul is charging Timothy before God, before the angels, don't play favorites. Peter began to speak. I realize now it's true that God does not show favoritism. Romans 2.1, for God does not show favoritism. Colossians 3.25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. God's an equal opportunity savior and an equal opportunity dammer. He plays by the same rules for everybody. There's no favoritism. But my dad was a minister. So what? My dad was an elder. So what? But I'm from the right race. No, you're not. That was the people of Israel. You're not one of them. And even if you would, God didn't play favoritism with them either. He, he was the equal time opportunity punisher of Israel. Wiped them off the face of the earth. And he cut, if he cut off the natural branch, how much quicker he's going to be cut off you who are grafted in. God doesn't play favorites. Neither should we. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus, Christ must not show favoritism. James 2. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. You're, con you're breaking the law of love when you show favoritism. So... Paul, before God, before Christ, before the elect angels, charged this young preacher, listen, young man, listen, young evangelist, who I, who I mentored, who had the laying on hands of the elders, and you're now evangelist, and you have this gift, you have this responsibility. Listen, young man, no favorites. I know they're your friend. I know you like them. I know you've known them for years, but you can't play favorites. And I've seen preachers play favorites. I've seen elders play favorites. And there's no place for it in the church. Um, what do you do when your friend wants to be an elder? And he's a good guy. 
but his wife's a gossip. A man you love and respect. Who had more influence on you than anyone, maybe, but your father. But his wife's a gossip. And you know, if you won't ordain him, if you tell him that, it's going to destroy your friendship. Might even mean you lose your job. What do you do? You don't show favoritism. Because God's watching. God sees. And all of you who are in ministry or will be in ministry, I charge you before God and before Christ and before the holy angels, don't be quick to go making somebody an elder. Don't withhold rebuke because they're your friend. Don't not publicly rebuke them because you don't want to hurt their feelings and they're your good buddy or they're your father-in-law. No nepotism in the church of Christ. No favoritism among God's people. And that's why if you're going to be a preacher, you've got to have some courage. You've got to have some guts. You've got to have some nerve. It's not for wimps. Wimps need not apply because you, have, you can't be timid and be a preacher. You can't have a spirit of timidity but of power and of self-control and of love and self-discipline. It takes guts. Okay, so then he bumps on. Now we go to another fun, unpopular topic. <clears throat> Stop drinking wa only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The, sin, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, and the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. You ever feel like, man, I've been doing all this and nobody notices? It'll catch up with you. You don't need to brag or point it out. And if you're really doing it to be seen, you're not really doing it for the right reason anyway. But good deeds have a way of catching up with you, and so do sins. If you sinned and nobody caught on to it and you hit it real good, it's chasing you. It's fault you didn't repent, and it's coming after you. Be sure your sin will find you out. Repent before it catches you. Repent now before, because when it catches up to you, it's not going to be pretty. Repent now. Stop it now. Confess it now. Get forgiveness now. Some things are obvious. Some sins are obvious. Other ones, not so much. They're kind of hidden. They're not as obvious. But they will become obvious. Especially when put into the light of God's Word. You know, some things we don't, we justify them. Well, that's not that bad of a sin. But then maybe you go, you go to church and a preacher preaches on something that you've been justifying your mind and all of a sudden you realize, man, what I've been doing is despicable. It's uglier than I thought. In fact, for me, usually I have trouble stopping a sin until I see how ugly it is.
You've got to hate sin. And to hate it, you've got to see how ugly it is. And to see how ugly it is, you've got to bring it into the light. Some things look cute in the dark, right? All the women are good looking at closing time. And sometimes things look good. Well, that's not so well, that's not so bad. That's not such a big deal. Blah, 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 blah. Today, when I was a kid, universally among all Christians I knew, everybody considered drinking alcohol a bad thing. Today, the vast majority of people I run into that are Christians, they're like, well, you know, as long as you don't get drunk. And social drinking is just fine. Drinking alcohol, nobody wants to take a stand on it. Nobody wants to, you know. And this is their, this is their favorite verse. Drink a little uh, wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent illness. See, it's okay. There is no part of this verse that advocates for nor justifies social drinking. In fact, I want to ask you a question. Why was Timothy only drinking water? Because Christians weren't drinking. There's other things that you've got to understand. The alcohol today is different than the alcohol back then. Now, did they have hard alcohol back then? Sure, but it wasn't as readily available. It wasn't mass-produced. There wasn't a, a brewery on every corner like there is now with their own custom local brew. And there wasn't a winery, even when I was a kid. I didn't know of any wineries where one could go and hoity-toity and drink some wine and taste some cheese. There wasn't any wineries when I was a kid. Now they're everywhere. It used to be like something out in California. Now everybody's got a wine. I'm going to a local winery, sample some wine. I'm going to go down to the bar and have a drink with my friends and... This has been advocated in our, uh, I had a kid that didn't believe in drinking. He goes off to Johnson Bible College and he gets taught there that, that it's, uh, it's just fine. Comes back and tells me, you know, most preachers, if they want to understand people, they probably ought to spend a year or two as a bartender first to just understand the world. I'm like, what in the world are you? What in the world? Um, today, our drinks are professionally, scientifically pro uh, uh, made at a high alcohol content, way higher than the, I left my grape juice sitting out in an animal skin sack for a week. Um, and they're, they're, you know, 10% alcohol or more. And they're scientifically designed to give you that warm feeling. Make you feel all warm. Ah, I, I don't want to get drunk. I just want that little warm feeling. Newsflash, you got the warm feeling, you're drunk. You got that little buzz, you're drunk. That's, that's what being drunk is. A lot of corporations today, I've seen them, they used to be, you know, you could have a drink of, of alcohol over lunch, and now they won't allow it anymore. Because they realize even just one drink was affecting the performance and the work performance of their employees. And all you got to do is do, take a couple drinks and drive and you're getting arrested and you're going to jail. You can a couple drinks and, you're, and get behind a wheel and you're going to jail. 
And you're telling me it's okay for you to sit out in the backyard after mowing the lawn and kick back a couple drinks and you're not getting drunk? Whereas if you got in your car, the government would tell you, you're drunk! This is not a justification for alcohol consumption. When I was young and stupid, which wasn't that long ago, the young was, but not the stupid part, um, I went through the same thing where I like, well, as long as you don't get drunk, it just forbids drunkenness, which is true. But what I didn't understand, because I never drank alcohol, uh, all, you know, all through high school, I never dr- I never, I've never been drunk in my life. Um, I didn't understand how it worked or how it was. I read a, a book, and it's, if you're interested in this topic, and you don't exactly agree with what I'm saying tonight, or you want evidence to back up what I'm saying tonight, I would encourage you to read a book called Wine in the Bible. And ironically, written by a Catholic. Um, uh, And this book goes through and explains how wine was used in the Bible, what wine was like, what the different words are in Greek and Hebrew for wine, and what it means, and what new wine is, grape juice, and on and on, and what these different things are. And if you want a full understanding of wine, how it was used in biblical times, what the words mean, and and what it all means, I would encourage you to read the book, Wine in the Bible. It's an excellent book on this topic. Um, But what is the justification? Well, it says that at this point, Timothy was only drinking water. Why? Because he didn't want to get drunk. So, he was a teetotaler. He wasn't drinking any. His, his way to not get drunk was to just not drink any alcoholic wine. Now, he's obviously drinking grape juice because he was taking the Lord's Supper. Well, Kendall, there you go, right there. Jesus drank wine at the Lord's Supper. That was new wine. That was grape juice. How do you know? Because you couldn't have anything fermented on Passover. You couldn't even have yeast which you put in stuff to make stuff alcoholic. You couldn't even have yeast, which you put in to make leavened bread. You couldn't even have that in your house on the Passover. Not only could you not have yeast in your bread, you couldn't have yeast in your house on the Passover. When Jesus was offered an alcoholic drink on the cross, he spit it out and wouldn't drink it. Because if he drank alcohol with yeast in it on the Passover, he'd been sinning. You could, Jesus did not drink alcoholic wine on the Passover. My, um, I had a friend, who, I think he might even be an elder, and I'm not sure, at Oak Forest now. Uh, he, was a, he, was a mem- he was a deacon at Oak Forest when I was there. And he was Roman Catholic when he got married. He told me how his wedding was ruined because he, was the, he was, got married in the spring and he was the night wedding. There was a morning wedding, an afternoon wedding, an evening wedding this priest did at this Catholic church in St. Leon or wherever. And um, uh, he's at the church and the priest does the first well they offer communion but the whole church doesn't take it at a wedding just the husband and wife take communion so they take but the catholics believe in transubstantiation that when he blesses the bread and the wine that literally turns into the body and the blood of christ so you can't just take the blood of jesus and dump it down the drain or have it left or leave it laying around you have to drink it so he drinks a whole bottle of wine at the first wedding then the second wedding then he goes to the reception and has a wine and then he goes to the second wedding and then he gets to their wedding and he's like i'm glad most of it was in latin but he was like it was like pig latin or something it was slurred latin don't say requiem 
He was slosh, ruined their wedding. Because they were drinking alcohol. But Jesus didn't use alcoholic wine in the Passover. That was new wine. It was grape juice. It was not fermented. That would have been against the law of Moses. So, why was he drinking water? Because he wouldn't get drunk. Why is he told to only use a little wine? Because he didn't want to get drunk. And that's not saying, you know, have a little drink, you know. No, he's saying have a little, because it's medicine. Why did God invent alcohol if he didn't want us? Because it's medicine. He told us to do it for his stomach's sake. Why? Now, um, I had a friend, he, he said, I talked to all kinds of doctors and asked them if somebody has uh, um, stomach ache, should they drink wine? He's like, no, absolutely not. That was the worst thing you could do for, uh, you know, if you have an ulcer or whatever. That's like the worst thing in the world. His stomach problems <laughs> wasn't an ulcer or a stomach ache or he needed some Pepto-Bismol. It was dysentery. Montezuma's revenge. Okay? Uh, he would get diarrhea because he'd go from town to town, someplace new, and he was used to the microbes in the water where he was from, but he'd go to this new place, and you know what they always say, like, if you go to Mexico, don't drink the water, right? You guys, last summer, I went to Mexico, and I did not drink the water, but I foolishly ate uh, something from a roadside stand that had that had like vegetables in it that had been washed in the water and then not cooked. And I was teaching on Monday night and I was supposed to teach for two hours and I taught for one hour and dismissed and I said to the preacher, can you take me, take me home? And Luis, with Brother Luis, he was driving me home and I'm like, brother, you're gonna have to pull over. <laughs> And I went to open the door and throw up. And the next thing I know, I wake up. I'm laying passed out. I passed out. I fainted. Passed out in the street, laying in my own vomit. Uh, with Annie over me going, oh, baby, are you okay? And Brother Luis going, Father, please be with you. I was praying in, <laughs> praying in Spanish over me. I'm like, I got the full Mexican experience. Two days and lots of antibiotics. I was sick. But if you took that water and you put some fermented grape juice gel in it, the, the alcohol in it would kill those microbes and you could drink it. It hardly has any alcohol to it at all. Do you know if you could drink a gallon of uh, milk in an hour, it'd get you drunk? Problem is you can't drink a gallon of milk in an hour. You can't drink enough. And some of this stuff, you can't get drunk because there's hardly any alcohol in it. The, the Romans, they had these animal skins and they would put this wine into it and it wasn't like wine, like liquid. It would almost be like a gel. It was like a concentrate. And it, they would let it sit in there and it would ferment. And then when they got a drink of water someplace, they would take their wine skin and they'd squeeze it in there and stir it up. You know, it's like Tang or Kool-Aid or whatever. You know, you're, you stir it up and then it kills all the stuff in it, you can drink the water. He says, don't drink 
water only, but drink a little wine for your stomach's sake because of your frequent Montezuma's revenge. That's what that means. Timothy was getting the squirts and he was giving him a way to not get diarrhea. This is not go get plastered at the bar or become a, be, become a bartender so you can be a good preacher. That, that is not what this is saying. Wine is to be used medicinally, not for social drinking. Go read, go read what uh, King Lemuel's mother says to him. Proverbs 30. Son, don't drink alcohol. You'll, you won't, you'll deprive people of justice. It's not for kings to drink alcohol. Somebody tell our president. It's not for kings to drink alcohol. That's for, that's for people who are sick and dying who don't want to feel pain. Because it numbs you. It's medicine for sick people. It's not, you know... Now, have I drank alcohol in the past, uh, you know, 30 years? Yeah, it's called NyQuil. And you go read what, it's like 90 proof. That stuff will knock you out. You can't drink NyQuil and drive. And if you drank enough NyQuil, if you'd suck the whole bottle down, you'd get drunk. That's, that's alcohol. Unless you're getting the DayQuil, which doesn't work. It's medicine. Is it wrong to use alcohol as medicine? No. Here he says use it as medicine. In small doses. You ever see the little cup that comes with your NyQuil? It's, oh, it's, so it's like the coffee cups in there. It's tiny. <laughs> it's like a communion shot glass. <laughs> it's to be used medicinally. Now, some sins you'll pay for in this life. If not, you'll pay for it much worse on Judgment Day. Some are obvious now, and some kind of sneak up from behind and get you. Um, sometimes good and evil are not obvious. Sometimes it's not as obvious. Figure it out now before Judgment Day. And don't get confused. Why is that verse with this verse about alcohol? Why does Timothy pair those two things together? Because... Um, there's a good use and a bad use for alcohol. God created alcohol for a purpose and it has uh, a use that's legitimate. But if you abuse it, that's wrong. And if you are using some pain medications for pain at little small doses for a short amount of time so you don't get addicted to it, that's fine. But if you're using pain medication for recreational purposes, that's illegal, number one, and it's wrong. And if you're doing something to get that warm feeling where you just don't care, that's drunkenness. That's what it means to be drunk. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So it's definitely a sin to get drunk. The question then arises, when am I drunk? Right? It's kind of like, love your neighbors yourself. But who's my neighbor? You know? <laughs> don't, uh, don't have anything to do with sexual immorality. Well, how far is too far? How far can I go with somebody before it's a sin? 
We ask the wrong questions. We shouldn't be asking, how much alcohol can I drink before it's a sin? We should be asking, how little alcohol can I drink so I don't look like I'm a drunk? Webster's Dictionary defines drunk as when a person consumes alcohol to the point of impairment of physical and mental facilities. It's a depressant. Alcohol is. It, it, may, it slows your responses. And when you are getting that, I, I had a lady in my church, Jerome, she's like, well, I don't get drunk. I just, I just drink a couple glasses of wine at night just, just to take the edge off so I can relax and sleep. Uh, that's drunkenness. Do, do you as a Christian need alcohol to sleep? When you can't go to sleep without drinking some alcohol, you're an addict. You got a problem. Seek help. How much alcohol does it take to cause impairment? Not much, according to the latest studies. The common wine of Jesus' day was slightly fermented grape juice, not 10% alcohol, aged to perfection to give you a buzz. If you have a buzz, you're drunk. And drunkards don't go to heaven. Now, because I'm not content with merely saying what I've said, but proving my point, I want to take you back to my Proverbs class, to this proverb about alcohol. And I want you to make sure that your beliefs on alcohol and what you say about it aligns with this passage. What does that proverb say? First of all, who has woe? That's like, like sorrow, right? It's not, <laughs> that's the old joke, right? What was, <laughs> what was Elijah's horse's name? Ismi, because he's always saying, woe is me. Uh, it's not woe is in slow down, it's woe is in sorrow. <laughs> who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Who, those who linger over wine and go sample bowls of mixed wine. Oh yes, a good mixed drink. I'm just sampling. The people who do that, they have woe, sorrow, strife, complaints, needless bruises, and bloodshot eyes. See, alcohol is a depressant, causing chemically induced depression, woe, and sorrow. Alcohol does not relieve depression, it deepens depression. Be careful that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life that will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. Notice the things that alcohol is associated with. Drunkenness, dissipation, anxiety, hearts being weighed down. If you're feeling down, the worst thing you could do is go have a drink. Oh, I feel terrible. I'm, I need a drink. No, you don't need a drink. You need anything but a drink. Alcohol does not help you when you're depressed. It sends you into a tailspin and a spiral downward. It has terrible physical consequences. It's a depressant that makes people argumentative and violent. Ever read Proverbs 20, verse 1? Beer is a brawler and wine is a mocker and those who are led astray of them are not wise. I remember when I first got on Facebook, like back in 2009, I saw one of the friends of mine from Bible college and she posted a picture 
of herself of a beer and that she's I love this particular beer blah blah and it says and I'm like I cannot believe these people I went to school with are now like all about social you know it's okay to and I'm just and so I just put on I just put in the comment Proverbs 20 verse 1 and a whole bunch of people that I went to Bible college with unfriended me and sent me nasty messages and told me I'm judgmental I just quoted a verse it's like the time in college they, they put TVs in the lounges in the dorms and I would come in and they would be watching all of these terrible things on television. I'm like, I'm in a Bible college and they're watching that? Well, I just couldn't believe what they were watching on the TVs and I'm in a Bible college. So I went to the, R, the, the guy, not my RA, but the guy that's in charge of the whole dorm. His name is Alex. And I said, Alex, would it be okay if I put a little scripture in a, in a, um, in a frame on top of the television? He said, sure. And so I just put a couple scriptures about uh, not, you know, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's true, you know, think what's it. I just put some verses like that. I put it up there and people would turn it down. People would knock it off. And eventually somebody threw it away. It disappeared. I would put scripture on top of a TV to Bible college and it would disappear. And I'm like, what in the world? Sometimes you don't, all you got to do is just quote a scripture and you're like, they're ready to kill you. A bar fight is like, that's like a common thing. It's like in every movie, if there's a bar scene, there's going to be the bar fight. Why? Because people are drunk. Or, you know, because it makes you go to these extremes. When somebody's, they're, they're either really loving or they're really mean, right? They just go, and nothing in between. I love you, man. You know, you're, you're the best guy ever. I never had a friend like you. I love you. Come here, man. I want to, come here. That's one side. And then, two seconds later, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to come. And they're like throwing fists and stuff like that. That's what happens when you're drunk here. You're just stuck on stupid. And that's why there's needless bruises, injuries, deaths. Um, 70% of motorcycle deaths are alcohol related. Something like 45, 50% of car deaths are alcohol related. If people would just stop getting drunk, the number of accidents would just drop. Death, it kills. And not just the person who does it, but other innocent people. Alcohol is a scourge when it's abused. It's supposed to be just medicine. But people, look what it says in verse 31. Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly in the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. <laughs> you expect me to believe that when Jesus turned the water to wine, it was hard alcohol? That's what you expect me to believe. You expect me to believe Jesus turned it into the kind of wine that we have today. You really believe that? That's what Jesus did. He served these people that something the book of Proverbs says don't even look at. The Bible says that when it's the hard stuff, when it's sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smooth, when it's all bu the bubbly, 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 don't even look at it. It, says, it doesn't say don't drink it. It says don't even look at it. Don't sit there and tempt yourself with it. 
Don't even gaze at it. it. Because sparkling smooth alcohol is compared to what? A deadly snake. It's poison, in other words. It's slow suicide. It destroys your liver. It destroys your kidney. It destroys brain cells. Every time you drink alcohol, you lose brain cells. And folks, those, those things, are, they're not coming back. Alcohol is not something you want to consume on a regular basis. Proverbs 23, 33, your eyes will see strange things. Your mind will imagine confusing things. Alcohol takes away your ability to reason. I remember when I was doing an alcohol drug prevention program uh, with some kids, some teenagers, I was talking about the dangers of alcohol. And this kid says, I was talking about drinking and driving. And he says, well, when I'm older and I drink uh, and I get drunk, I just won't drive. Have you not been listening, son? (laughs) When you're drunk, you don't know you're drunk because you're so drunk. You don't know you're drunk. I'm fine. I can drive. Give me my keys. Both of you, hand them over. Oh, there's only one of you. Okay. It confuses the mind. It destroys the ability to reason. This inability to reason robs us of self-control. How many people have done stupid things when they're drunk? And said horrible things when they're drunk. They don't even believe or think, but they're drunk, and so they said stuff they regret later. Mel Gibson. Um, it, to lack self-control is to be open to the devil's attack. Look what it says in Proverbs about self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. To give up self-control is to give Satan control. When you get drunk, you go, I'm going on autopilot and the one who's driving is Satan. And even if you don't get totally smashed drunk, just a little drunk, then you're giving Satan just a little control. And, you know, people get drunk and the clothes come off and the inhibitions go away and crimes happen and violence happens. I sat in a jail in White River, Arizona, in the Apache Indian Reservation, with a man who killed his wife the night before, bawling his eyes out to me, saying, I should have put down the bottle a long time ago. I would have never hurt her. I've never hit her when I was sober. But I got so drunk I killed her. Now my kids aren't going to have a dad. My kids aren't going to have a mother. I'll never see my kids again and they'll never forgive me for killing their mom. His life destroyed because he did things he would have never done if he hadn't been drunk. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, like laying on top of the rigging. Too much alcohol is unhealthy. Like all other sin, it kills. Alcohol is a poison that destroys brain cells, internal organs, and mental function. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you from whom you receive from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Take care of your temple. And alcohol destroys the temple. And it's addictive. They hit me, you'll say. I'm, I'm not hurt. They beat me up. I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? Christians have liberty to eat and drink anything, but not if it controls them or if it's habit forming. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.12. Here's the principle. Everything's permissible for me, but not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Just because the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not, 
and it's permissible doesn't mean it's beneficial. The question is, is you drinking alcohol beneficial to your witness, to your body, or is it a huge temptation and a, and a, and a blight on your witness? We have liberty in Christ, but not to do the things that are unbeneficial or that we will be mastered by. Anything that masters our will and controls us should be avoided. Anything addicted should be cut out of our life. Another example of this is uh, tobacco uh, for some caffeine, if it masters them. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with caffeine. I'm not Mormon. But if you're the kind of person that is an absolute jerk until you have coffee in the morning, you're addicted and you need to get off coffee. If you've got to have coffee or you are a bear to handle, you need to repent and stop drinking this stuff. Because you are allowing your mood and your emotions to be controlled by a substance. Anything addictive is bad. And I don't mean just a, I don't have Facebook on this phone because it's not healthy for me. Is it permissible? Yeah. Was it beneficial to me? My spiritual walk? No, it was not. So I don't have it, even though I enjoyed it. Too much. Um, you say, well, that's a dumb thing to be addicted to. Yeah, well, so are some of the things you're addicted to. So. <laughs> yeah, thank you. First Corinthians. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Drunks don't go to heaven unless they repent. And if you have a drinking problem and you're struggling with substance abuse, I feel for you because it can be a real addiction. Then I want to encourage you to get help and to break the addiction. And even if it's just a casual every once in a while giving yourself a little buzz, repent. If you're drinking enough alcohol that it changes how you feel, you drunk. And that's a sin. Because it's slowing your responses, it's affecting your body, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and anything that robs you of self-control, anything that robs you of self-control is sin. Do not let anything take away your self-control. I don't care whether it's pot or marijuana or any kind of drug or um, alcohol or a relationship. Don't let anything rob you of your ability to control yourself. See, the ironic thing is when you give yourself over to God and give Him control, He gives you self-control. So that is chapter 5 next week. We will dive into chapter 6. Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time together tonight. Thank you for your teachings on alcohol to help us avoid the stupidity of uh, alcohol abuse. And I pray, God, if there's some caught in the devil's trap uh, with alcohol, with drunkenness, or uh, with um, addiction, that you would help them to find the help and that they, um, that they could get the help they need. Lord, I, I don't want to judge those people because I've had my own addictions and, and my own sins in my past. I, mine's different than theirs, but I've had my own. 
And you delivered me from them and you've uh, given me victory over them and forgiven me. And I pray God that they can find that same deliverance that I found from my sin, that they can find that same victory and they could get the help. Um, Lord, there's been times in life where I, uh, I couldn't get past sin without getting help from others. And I pray that there wouldn't be anybody here too proud to ask for help. Uh, we all have to. There isn't anybody that follows after you that doesn't have to get help from other Christians and other believers and get prayer and support and encouragement and advice and uh, counseling. I just pray, God, if there's somebody here tonight who has a problem with alcohol, that uh, they, could, uh, they could get that out of their life. Thank you for your teaching and um, thank you for making your, your teaching plain. May we follow it and not compromise and not, uh, not justify things that, think, uh, that we think aren't clear the sins that are following after us and are going to catch up with us. I pray, God, that we would address those issues now before eternity so we do not face judgment. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.